The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We're going to read Psalm 65. This is to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house of your holy temple. By awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. What wonderful words. In this sermon, we're now in Joshua 17, verses 14 through 18. This is entitled, You Shall Create. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of Bethshan and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power, but you shall not only have one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours." For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. On sermon typing day, my friend Sergio will often send me 20 messages in a row just to be as annoying as possible. But that's okay. I do the same to him while he is trying to do his video work. Other than him, I have contact with absolutely no one from the time I start till the time I finish. This has been true for years. An exception to this is truly an exception. While studying the text for this sermon, there were some rather amazing inaccuracies in the translation of the verses. I noted to Sergio how fascinating the passage was, and a few minutes later, he came back with some comments on the first verse. I responded with some analysis from verses 15 and 16. He came back with a dubious, yeah, that sounds right. But after going through it a bit more, he said, yes, wow. Incredible. To make sure he wasn't funning me, which he will do, I asked if he really agreed with my conclusion, and his response was, can't believe you paid attention. In other words, while translators are spending their time trying to make a translation sound as good and understandable as they can, they will often miss the actual meaning of the words. Feeling good about this, I told Sergio that I actually just ran my thoughts through AI and that this is what popped out. After that, I spent the morning playing solitaire. Okay, that didn't happen. But for fun, Sergio asked his AI resource for a sermon on our verses today. 
About one minute later, he sent me this. This is an AI typing this. In Joshua 17, 14 through 18, we see the story of the tribe of Joseph, specifically the half-tribe of Manasseh, who are given a large portion of land on the west side of the Jordan. However, instead of being satisfied with the land they had been given, they complained and asked for more. This passage reminds us that it is easy to become discontent and never feel satisfied with what we have been given. It is important to remember to be grateful for the blessings that we have received, rather than constantly striving for more. Let us strive to cultivate an attitude of gratitude and trust in God's provision for our lives. Being a little weak, he strengthened the parameters, asking it to write a short sermon paragraph in an expository style about Joshua 17, 14 through 18. Focus on the meaning of the Hebrew words and how this passage points to Jesus. 30 seconds later, I got this. In Joshua 17, 14 through 18, we see the tribe of Joseph, specifically the half-tribe of Manasseh, requesting more land from Joshua. The Hebrew word for more in this passage is od, which can also be translated as still or yet. This implies that the half-tribe of Manasseh already had a significant amount of land, but they were not satisfied and wanted more. This passage serves as a reminder of our own tendency to always want more, even when we have already been blessed with so much. However, this passage also points us to Jesus, who came to fulfill the desires of our hearts. In Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Just as God provided for the Israelites, he also provides for us, and we can trust that he will give us what we truly need. Let us seek to find contentment in Jesus and trust in his provision for our lives. Well, so much for letting AI do the work. Hopefully what is presented today will be a bit better than that. Our text verse comes from Romans 11. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's hard to understand how anyone can read the words of Paul and come to any other conclusion than that they are referring to national Israel of the future. But that is exactly what many think. It is stupefying to even imagine. Our passage today will deal with this issue in detail. The five verses I just read you detail this completely. But having heard the verses from the New King James Version or almost any other version, you probably would never guess it. But look at some of the variations in translation you will see today. I took the New King James Version and then my translation. These three examples. Then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the Giants. That's the New King James Version. Charlie Garrett. Go up to you the forest and create to you there in the land of the Perizzite and the Rephaim. Again, from the New King James Version. Since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. The Hebrew says, as translated by me, for hastened to you Mount Ephraim. Again, from the New King James Version, the mountain country is not enough for us. My translation, not found, meaning not able to attain to us the mount. Reading the differences in these two translations is almost like reading an entirely different account. One thing is for sure, either one is right and one is wrong, or both are wrong, but both cannot be right. What is the Lord telling us, and why is what is being said so hard to understand. The reason is what we are looking for. Translators will tend to reject things that don't seem to make sense, even if that is the obvious translation of what is presented. But in following this strategy for translation, a lot of meaning will be missed. I think you'll agree by the time we finish. If not, and if you prefer something a little easier to listen to, let me know and I will have the AI put out a 25-page sermon for you next week. That will take about 10 minutes, and I'll have the rest of the day to play solitaire. <laughs> Be sure to let me know what you decide, 10 minutes or 10 hours. I leave it up to you. I hope you will go with the 10 hours. Such great treasure is to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. 
and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is for hastened to you, Mount Ephraim. It's verses 14 through 18. Verse 14, then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, here is a united voice of those of Ephraim and Manasseh. Together they formed the voice of their father, Joseph. The right of the firstborn was granted to him by Jacob, meaning a double portion. As such, this is making a play on the name of Joseph. Joseph or Yosef comes from the verb Yasaf, to add. Thus his name means he shall add. However, there is another meaning to his name based on his mother's declaration at his birth. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away Asaph, my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add Yasaf to me, another son. She not only used the word Yasaf to add, but also the word Asaf to gather or remove. As such, his name means he shall take away as much as it means he shall add. This duality of name meanings extends to both of Joseph's sons as well, Ephraim and Manasseh. Each of them have dual meanings. As for the double portion of the firstborn having been granted to him, that goes back to Jacob's blessing upon his sons in Genesis. Here's what it says in Genesis 48. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. During this blessing, Jacob placed the younger Ephraim above the older Manasseh. Here's what it says in, again in Genesis 48. So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will bless saying, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Immediately after that, he then spoke of the surety of the double blessing to Joseph. Genesis 48, 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Because of this, the events of these verses in Joshua 17 take place. One can see the hidden pun of the opening clause by translating the names that are found in it. Vadeberu bene Yosef et Yehoshua, and spoke sons he shall add to the Lord is salvation. The sons of he shall add are coming to get a little more added. Verse 14 continues, why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit? Rather, the preposition is singular. Madua natata li nachala koral echad vechevel echad. Why given to me inheritance? Lot one and portion one. The goral or lot is the casting of the grant itself. The chevel or cord is the measurement of that lot into a granted portion of land. The two tribes of Joseph speak with one united voice. Because of their words, one might wonder if they had been out drinking all night or something. A little background will help explain. First, the numbers of the tribes at the first census were 40,500 for Ephraim and 32,200 for Manasseh. That's Numbers chapter 1. It is true that together they outnumbered every tribe except Judah, but individually they were not exceptionally large in number. At the second census, the numbers of Manasseh were more than Ephraim. Ephraim was 32,500 and Manasseh was 52,700. Together they could be considered a large tribe, being 8,700 larger than the largest tribe of Judah. However, one half of Manasseh wanted land east of the Jordan. This was granted. Taking them out of the total, the number left to occupy the grant west of the Jordan would be comparable to one of the middle or even smaller sized tribes. And more, it may be that the land grant of Judah was significantly larger than that of Joseph's land west of the Jordan, but Simeon will be incorporated within Judah's land grant. And even more to the point, Judah's land contains vast areas that are barren wilderness. On the other hand, the land given to the sons of Joseph is rather large in proportion to their numbers, and it contains some of the most fertile and productive land to be found within the borders of Canaan. Add in the giant swath of land east of the Jordan that was immensely good land for pasturing flocks, and they had more than any other tribe by far. 
What would cause them to claim they had insufficient land or only one inheritance is hard to guess. Maybe they had been out drinking too much the night before. Or it could be, based on what they will say in the coming verses, that they are claiming the only inheritance they have is what has been given to the half-tribe east of the Jordan. Whatever it is, a review of their recorded inheritance is needed. The lot for both was introduced in Joshua 16, verses 1 through 4. From there, the land of Ephraim was detailed in verses 16, 5 through 10. After that, verses 17, 1 through 13 detailed that of Manasseh. The land for both was decided, and then it was divided between the two. It is possible that they felt gypped by getting one lot, which was then divided, or only Manasseh is speaking out the complaint because it had grown so much during the wilderness wanderings while Ephraim had diminished. As such, they felt they were due more land. But neither of these will seem to fit the protestations they lay before Joshua. The entire discourse is unreasonable based on what was just reviewed. And yet they are presenting it as if there is an obvious deficiency in their allotment. It could be that because Joshua is of the tribe of Ephraim, they thought he would bear with their complaint and give them a note of favoritism. He will, however, remain steadfast in showing impartiality. Their complaint is, verse 14 continues, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. Again, it is singular. Va'ani amrav ad ashur ad kol berchani Yehovah. And I, people great, until which, until now, has blessed me Yehovah. This is the only time that Yehovah is mentioned in this passage. And it appears that they are claiming that what they have been apportioned is not a blessing from him at all. They have been blessed up until now, but that doesn't seem to include what they have been handed at this time. Their words are laughable in comparison to their numbers and in relation to what they have been allotted. What they claim is obviously not correct, but something has motivated them to speak as they have, and Joshua immediately perceives what it is. He addresses it directly, and he does it by using their own words. Verse 15, so Joshua answered them, if you are a great people, there is a strong emphasis as he repeats their claim right back to their ears. Vayomer alechem Yehoshua im amrav ata, and said to them, Joshua, if people great, you, they made the claim. If it is so, and if the land they have is supposedly insufficient for them, then there must be a problem within the land that they are unwilling to address. Instead, they want more or other land so that they can avoid that issue altogether. Joshua knows this and subtly uses their boasting to highlight their cowardice. Verse 15 continues, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the parasites and the giants. Go up to you the forest and create to you there in the land, Perizzite, and the Rephaim. The problem isn't the amount of land at all. The problem is the inhabitants in the land. The tribes have boasted of their size, supposedly necessitating more land. And so Joshua hurls their words right back at them. If you are so great, you don't need more land. You need a backbone. In his statement, he uses the word bara, or create, it is the first use of this word in scripture not connected to God, and it appears intentional. There is another word he could have used, chatav, meaning to cut wood. But he goes beyond that, and he says, go create something out of the forest. Make it usable, you great people. God through the lot created a portion for you. Now go create something out of it. The need for a backbone is twofold. First, they need to get to work with their creating. And second, Joshua seems to poke at them that they need to do it. There, in the land of those settled in people, including the dreaded giants. There's an obvious failure of these people to rely on the Lord. He had promised to go before them, and he had done so, never failing them in the process. With the land allotted by him, all they needed to do was just to trust and then to act. As for the people groups, parasite means a breach or eruption. Rephaim comes from a word meaning to sink down or to relax, or from a word meaning to heal. 
If the latter, then it indicates that their size came from being invigorated in some way, probably through special inbreeding. Joshua has identified their failing, and he has told them what to do about it. Their complaint about land really comes down to accessibility. Verse 15 continues, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. Rather than too confined, as if that is all that is being referred to, it is Joshua speaking about the speed in which they will be able to subdue the mountainous area. Ki lecha har Ephraim, for hastened to you, Mount Ephraim. Mount Ephraim is being used as a synecdoche, referring to all of the mountainous area apportioned to them. In this, Joshua uses the word utz, to hasten to labor. It appears to be another poke at them. Look at how easy Mount Ephraim is. You will have it all cleared out in no time. You just need to get to work and put a little effort into your inheritance. With that, the moaning of Joseph continues. Verse 16, but the children of Joseph said, the mountain country is not enough for us. Not living up to their name, he shall add, Joseph moans against Joshua's words. Further, their answer is not that the mountain country isn't enough. Rather, they are refuting Joshua's claim that they can attain it speedily. Lo yimatse la nu hahar, not found to us the mount. The meaning is not that the mountainous area is not enough for them, as if they needed more. Rather, the word is matza, to find or attain. They are saying they cannot overtake it. The people living there are too strong. They have settled into the area and are fortified, and there will be no way to drive them out. Joshua said that the sons of Joseph will hasten to attain it, and they claim that it is unattainable. They are wallowing in their own incompetence and ineptitude while failing to trust in the unseen hand of the Lord. With that, the moaning goes further. Verse 16 continues, And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. It is all singular. And chariot iron in each the Canaanite, the dweller in land the valley. It is a total exaggeration. Though they possess chariots, these men claim that each and every Canaanite in the area had one, making it sound like they were as common as front doors on houses. As such, they grumble that not only can they not attain the mountainous country, they also could never defeat those in the valley. The Canaanite was too strong, and they could never drive him out. Unlike the mountainous area where the people were dug in and fortified, these people were in the open areas. This is where chariots are suitable and effective. Any obstruction at all would render them useless, but in open areas, they are quite lethal. However, despite being a fearful weapon of war, it is not something beyond their ability to defeat. In the Battle of Joshua 11 by the waters of Merom, Joshua handily defeated the vast army and burned their chariots with fire. They knew this, and yet they peevishly whine about the sizable and beautiful grant of land that they have been provided. The entire passage demonstrates a complete lack of faith in the Lord and in the promises that he has made. Of the armies with chariots, they continue in their grousing with the words of verse 16 going on, both those who are of Beit Shan and its towns and those who are of the Valley of Jezreel. La Asher be Bet Shan u be no teha ve la Asher be emek Yisrael. To who in Bet Shan and her daughters and to who in Valley Jezreel? The term daughters means towns. Thus it speaks of the smaller towns that fall under the protection of the mother city. The entire clause speaks of utter defeat. Not only are they afraid of the main city, but they are irritable about even attacking the towns around it. And those in the valley, open and exposed in the wide, expansive area, are thought to be too tough for them to handle because of their chariots. As for the names, Beit Shan means house of ease or house of security. Jezreel means God sows. Being prefixed with a mech or valley, it would be the depth of God sows, the Emek being a deep, broad valley. Despite their whimpering, Joshua remains unaffected. Verse 17, And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, Rather than spoke, it uses the word said. Further, the chronicler says his words are directed to the house of Joseph. They have come to him with a complaint about their inheritance, and so he addresses them as one. 
His words confirm what I said earlier. Their initial complaint, which continues here, is that their only inheritance is that already given to the half-tribe east of the Jordan. What they have been granted west of the Jordan is unattainable. And so they are left with that single land grant, whiners. But remaining undeterred, Joshua pokes them with great and emphatic words, even greater than they claim themselves. Verse 17 continues, you are a great people and have great power. Amrav ata vekoach gadol, people great, you, and people whopping. They came to Joshua with a claim that they were a great people, meaning numerous. Joshua has used the same word, rav, in the sense of powerful. They obviously didn't get it the first time, and so he adds in superlatives to almost mock them at their wincing attitude. The thing is, they can't refute him. He's never failed in a battle. He is of the same stock, meaning the house of Joseph, and has the Lord with him. They are the entire house of Joseph. They're numerous, and they have accompanied Joshua into battle, having learned the skills he possesses. And more, it would be blasphemous for them to claim the Lord is not with them as well. They know this, and they know Joshua knows they know it. Hence, verse 17 continues, You shall not have only one lot. Lo lecha lechad. No shall be to you lot one. Their griping has left Joshua entirely unaffected. What is east of Jordan is for the half-tribe of Manasseh. What is west is for Ephraim and half of Manasseh. And that land west of the Jordan is sufficient for both of them. The matter is decided. The challenge is set before them, and it is their task to secure what has been decided by the lot. The land has been marked out, and now it is time for them to act. And so Joshua continues. Verse 18, but the mountain country shall be yours. Kihar lach, for mountain shall be to you. As in verse 15, the word har, or mountain, is referring to the entire mountainous area of the land grant. It is given to the house of Jacob, and it is attainable. Verse 18 continues, although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours. Ki ya'ar hu ubereto vehaya lecha totsotav, for forest it, and you shall create, and shall become to you its outgoings. Joshua implies that the forest will sufficiently provide for them. With the wood, they can fashion weapons, they can build houses, and so on. In other words, it should not be considered an obstacle, but a benefit. In cutting down the forest, they will also have the benefit of workable fields. The land is good, it is available, and they will be able to subdue it. There is a formative process that must take place, but when it is accomplished, their goal of possessing a second lot will have been obtained. Joshua's words are direct, but they are also encouraging. All of this would belong to them. Many scholars say the outgoings refer to the fields and plains that border the wooded area. But what seems more likely is that it is referring to the sea, which borders the inheritance on the west. The Canaanites dwelt throughout the land, even to the seacoast. That will belong to them as well, because, as he says, verse 18 continues, For you shall drive out the Canaanite. It is again singular, kitorish et ha-kana'ani, for shall disinherit the Canaanite. They have been granted their inheritance from the Lord by lot. They are to disinherit those in the land in order to receive it. Joshua has remained fixed and resolute in his words. They are capable despite the force they will face. Verse 18 continues, though they have iron chariots. Rather than though, Joshua makes a statement of fact, ki rechev barzel lo. For chariot iron to him. It seems almost like he's trying to intimidate them. And without his previous words, one would wonder what he is talking about. But Joshua has already told them that they are able, that they will prevail even against iron chariots and even more. Verse 18 finishes with, and are strong. The passage ends with Joshua making a strong and emphatic statement that seems contradictory to the intent of the matter. Ki chazak hu. For strong, he. Not only does the Canaanite possess chariots, but he is a strong foe. Despite this, the house of Joseph will prevail. The final verse of the passage contains five statements, each beginning with the word key or four. Four mountains shall be to you. Four forest it, and you shall create, and shall become to you its outgoings. Four shall disinherit the Canaanite. 
for chariot iron to him, for strong he. Each is based on what was previously stated. This, because of this. No shall be to you, Lot 1, because mountain shall be to you, because forest it, and you shall create, and shall become to you its outgoings, because shall disinherit the Canaanite, because chariot iron to him, because strong he. Behold, I create something new, something glorious lies ahead that you will see. Believe that what I say I will do. You can put your full confidence in me. I shall create it, and it shall be done. There will be a new order of things on that day, as sure as is the rising of the sun, so there is surety in what I now say. What you cannot imagine is what I will do. Though you disbelieve now, it shall come about. My word is faithful, and it is true. Be confident in this, and have no doubt. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. The inheritance of the half-tribe of Manasseh is east of the Jordan. In Joshua 12, 1 through 6, it was noted that this was an inheritance obtained prior to national Israel's salvation. In this case, a review of the events leading to the inheritance after Israel's salvation is being detailed. The passage deals with the house of Joseph, or he shall add, with a secondary meaning of take away. Joseph was to receive a double inheritance. If the land for the half-tribe of Manasseh is one inheritance, then there needs to be another. The thing about this section is that it does not have to be chronological to what has already been said. Beginning it with the word then, as some translations do, gives a time order sense, but it actually begins with the word and. Because of this, the lot for their land could have been thrown at the time of their coming forward. The inheritance is noted in chapter 16, and the first half of this chapter could simply be categorical, just as has repeatedly occurred in the book of Joshua. The inheritances are defined, and then background information is filled in. That seems likely, but it is speculation. The reason it seems likely is that their claim to only one inheritance having been given them seems to presuppose it. Regardless of that, the matter is now addressed. Joshua anticipates Christ. The Lord is salvation. But each named tribe does too. The inheritance east of the Jordan is prior to Israel's national salvation. Whether it pictures the church or just individual Jews within the church isn't the issue because the Jews are a part of the church. It, with them, is an inheritance. Does everybody understand that? The church is Christ's inheritance. Putting aside the whining of the house of Joseph, which is certainly historical and accurate, the point of the words is that there is a second inheritance for Joseph due to the birthright. Likewise, there is a second inheritance for Christ due to his right to national Israel, something testified to thoroughly in the books of Moses, the prophets, and so on. Does everybody understand that? That's why I read that text verse to you. Israel is an inheritance that is not yet obtained by Christ Jesus. Is everybody seeing this picture? The negative attitude of those who come to Joshua implies the difficulty of the task. Despite Jesus not being negative about the events, the difficult nature of providing an inheritance to national Israel is being seen. In fact, to much of the church, it appears an impossibility. Most of them just say Israel is out, the church has replaced it, that's it. So the tenor of the words explains the reality of Israel's current situation. It seems impossible that it could ever be the case. In verse 15, the naming of the Perizzites and the Rephaim highlights this. Perizzite signifies a breach or eruption. Israel today is nothing but a bunch of lawbreakers symbolized by the Perizzites. Does anybody disagree with that? I got a Jew sitting in here right now from Israel agreeing with it. Likewise, the Rephaim, as seen in Joshua 12, anticipated those who follow false prophets. This is about as accurate a description of Israel today as anyone could imagine. Any word from the Lord is okay as long as it is not from Jesus. Joseph, he shall add and take away, picturing Jesus, is to add national Israel to his promised inheritance. He is to create land, meaning fertile soil, which is usable out of these people groups. A seemingly impossible task. Joshua, meaning Jesus, lets it be known that the job is a snap. It is hastened labor, 
to obtain Mount Ephraim. As has been seen in the previous sermons, a mountain, a har, is a lot of something gathered together. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. The meaning is that Ephraim, twice fruitful, representing this second inheritance, will hasten to come about. Verse 16 noted that the sons of Joseph said they could not attain to this. That is the historical record. It may be doubted that the Lord Jesus will bring about the restoration of national Israel, but it will come about. I can absolutely assure you of this. Go read Amos, the last verse of the last chapter. Despite the staggering amount of apostasy and false prophets through Christ, it will happen. From there, another obstacle, the Canaanites, is mentioned, along with their iron chariots. Canaanite signifies humbled, humiliated, or even subdued. Iron represents strength, be it in binding together, in government, in hard service, in bondage, and so forth. Chariots, like horses, are a source of pride. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Israel is a land of humiliated people, trusting in self and in doctrines that are strongly bound together, such as in the culture and religious aspects of life. Saying these are in the Emek, or deep broad valley, signifies that they are deeply ingrained and completely pervasive in them. The two locations, Beit Shan and the Valley of Jezreel, signify Israel's confidence and state of ease in their false ways and God's sowing into their lives the just due that they deserve. Hosea 1.5, it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the Valley of Jezreel. Like most prophecies, Hosea's has an immediate fulfillment and a future one. Also, the writings of Hosea prophesied both the casting off of Israel, you are not my people in Hosea 1.8, and the calling again of Israel, you are my people from Hosea 2.23. Verse 17 mentioned Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh all as one. It is the three twofold workings of Christ seen previously in Joshua. Joseph anticipates Christ who takes away man's reproach and who then adds him to God's people. Manasseh pictures Christ who came to pay Adam's debt and who in the process allows that debt to be forgotten before God. Ephraim looks to Jesus. He is twice fruitful in the land of his affliction, prevailing over the law and thus becoming the savior of Jew and Gentile as well as the church and national Israel. But his work also meant that sin was judged in him, thus the ashes signifying his afflictions. If you don't remember that, go back and watch the previous sermon. I explain it in detail. To them, Joshua acknowledges that they are great and whoppingly powerful. Of course, Christ can prevail over the failings of Israel. Therefore, you shall not only have one lot. The double inheritance belongs to the Lord. With that, the fivefold repetition of four was proclaimed. Four, mountain shall be to you. The centralized people group of Israel shall be his. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 37. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. The next portion, for forest it. It is a forest, a cluttered and unusable land that needs to be created. Isaiah 65, for behold, I create bara, new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create bara, Jerusalem is a rejoicing, and her people a joy. Who are her people? Israel. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. In creating this, it shall become to you its outgoings. In other words, the entire extent of Israel to the very last person will be holy. Four shall disinherit the Canaanite. Here's what it says in Zechariah 14. In that day, 
Holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. Here it is. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. The reason for disinheriting those who oppose him is for chariot iron to him. Those who trust in self and in their firm, unyielding false doctrines will either have those doctrines removed from them, or they, meaning those who trust in self, will be removed. Either way, nothing that is false will ever afflict Israel. This must be removed for strong he. The meaning is obvious. Falsities are strong, dangerous, invasive, and pernicious. Those who teach them will be removed. Those who hold to them will be corrected or destroyed. This is what the double inheritance of the house of Joseph anticipates. The inheritance is not merely the church that is saved during the church age, which is what replacement theologians teach. Does anybody here believe that? That God's going to abandon national Israel? Because he tells us right in these five verses that that is not the case. The inheritance is not merely the church. Not at all. National Israel is the inheritance of Jesus as well. He was promised this, and it is his by inheritance. The verses today are an explanatory statement of this fact. The thing about the passage that most strikes me is that without a correct translation of the Hebrew words, a completely different meaning is derived, which has nothing to do with what is actually being conveyed. Hence, to really understand what is being said, one needs to go beyond reading several versions of the word, which is a good start, and go line by line through the text, contemplating each word. It is a long, laborious, and tedious task, but what treasure is to be found in the Word. It took me 10 hours to get through these five verses. It was worth it. Does anybody here disagree with that? We're being shown that God does not betray you, because if he betrays national Israel, you might as well question your own salvation. This is the importance of what we're looking at here. It almost brings me to tears thinking about how unsound the theology in the world is because they misunderstand national Israel. In such a study, going word by word, we can be assured and reassured of the integrity of Scripture, the soundness of doctrines and the unsound nature of others, and so on. There are innumerable teachers and denominations that reject any future plan for or significance of national Israel, but they will be corrected in their thinking someday. They have failed to understand what God is doing and why, but through a close evaluation of names, places, and obscure words, it all comes more clearly into focus. Above all, let us hold fast to the most fundamental truth of any. All of Scripture is about Jesus. All of it. Without him, nothing in life makes sense, and nothing in his word or in this world has clarity. But with him, our lives have purpose and meaning. And the word, it comes alive when we look for him in its pages. Thank God for this tender and precious word, and thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Isn't it wonderful? It's just, it's marvelous what God is telling us in these obscure little stories that last a couple verses, you read them and you go on to the next thing, never thinking about it. I admit that was me until I typed the sermon. I was so excited. I emailed Sergio and he comes back with an AI. I'm glad I didn't stick with that. It's marvelous. It's just marvelous what he's telling us. And the AI was wrong, by the way. And the AI was wrong. There is no odd. That's right. There's no odd in there. Exactly. The entire thing was just goofy. People trusting in that, man, they're trusting in the Antichrist eventually. Okay, so I said I was going to say something at the beginning of this sermon. I'm going to say it now. A friend emailed me, and he was talking about a family member that just dismisses Jesus, dismisses God. I don't believe in a God that would just send everybody to hell if they don't do what he says. And I responded to my friend, and I said, listen, that's exactly 100%, 180 degrees opposite of what's going on. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We chose that path from the beginning. We chose that. 
That is our default position. God does not want that. Hence, he sent Jesus to save us out of hell. If you don't believe that, read John 3, 16 through 18. We need to get our thinking clear when we're presented with arguments like that, because arguments like that get into people's heads and they start passing it around school and everybody suddenly hates God because he's sending you to hell. It doesn't change anything if it's true, but he's not doing it anyway. We've done it to ourselves. What we need is Jesus to change the default setting. When I turn on a computer, here's the same stupid photo all the time that comes up, right? That's what they plugged in it when they gave it to me. That's called a default setting. I don't want that. I want to see my wife. So I turn on my computer. I change the default setting. And every day I turn it on, there's Hedico, right? Actually, it's not, but I'm just making an example. It's my dog blessing. I loved her. She was my favorite dog. She died in my arms. She was a wonderful dog. And I just put it up there and have never taken it down. Hedico used to be up there and I lost that photo. So anyway, the whole point is default setting. And if we continue to reject God's offer, which is an offer of love and grace and mercy, who's to blame? You're sitting at the dinner table or you're sitting at a picnic with your family, moaning against God for doing what he did. You've got to be out of your mind. You've got to be out of your mind to believe that that is true. When he sent Jesus to die on the cross, Jose, sitting in a church, never been in a church in his life, and he happened to be sitting in the back of a church, and there's a crucifix. And he says, that guy sure did something wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. He entered into the stream of humanity to die for your sin and your sin and my sin. That's what Jesus did wrong. The default position can be changed. And we idly sit about and fail to tell people. Don't do that. Watch that opening comments if you didn't see it today. Please. Go to the Superior Word opening comments and look for the opening comments of 12 March 2023. I'm saying this for people that will hear this video someday. He was a drug dealer. He was a <laughs> drug addict from seven years old. His entire family, his younger brother, seven years old, they're pumping him full of drugs because that's all they knew. And now he's out telling people about Jesus tirelessly. Help his ministry. He's doing great things. Great things. Watch his videos. Appreciate what he's doing for the Lord. This is the God we serve and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Please call on Jesus today. Change your default position. Be saved through his shed blood. Our closing verse comes from 1 Peter 2. It is verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy we weren't his people and now we are they were his people and now they're not but they will be again have faith in the word of God Next week is Joshua 18, 1 through 10. It was a whopping gathering. You can bet it was so. It's entitled Israel Assembled Together at Shiloh. That'll be our 36th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. I got my rest last night. I went to bed an hour earlier after having set the clocks early all day. So I was already tired because it's already 8 o'clock. I didn't make it to late. I'm sorry, I lied. I never make it to 8 o'clock. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I got a poem for you, but I have something to ask you first. And as I said, I said this during the update, and I want you to listen again, or if you haven't heard this, I want you to know. This is offered to anyone who gets this question. The question was prepared before this was brought into the church on Thursday. So you can't say I was fudging this. I said on Monday, I'm going to give them a hard one. And then this came along on Wednesday. My mom walks in and I'm sitting up here getting her aid to close after Bible class. And she hands this to me and she said they were two for one. And I thought, what a good mother. And she said, this is to ask the church the question this week. And I'm like, 
but I'm happy I got a, a tough question because either I'm going to take this home with me or somebody's going to get a good reward for really having been in this book at the time because you had to have read it recently or you're not going to get it, but it is not unattainable. Somebody, either you or me, is going to take this home. Which king of Israel bought Mount Samaria and built it, calling the city Samaria? Anybody else? Omri! <laughs> king Omri. I'm sorry, you fail. I'll have to read that for you. I'll be enjoying that this week, by the way. I'll, I'll make that my morning breakfast for the next six days, okay? Yeah. I, I feel bad for you. I really do. I'm hurting. I'm, I'm hurting for you. Um, hang on a sec. I got to get to the right page here. Uh, 1 Kings 16, 23, and 24. It says, uh, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel, and he reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terza, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Okay, so there you go. I'm sorry nobody got that. I feel very bad for you. Um, okay, I got a poem for you. And then this is a long one. Five verses, folks. You shall create. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? Surely more land we merit. So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people... Then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself. This you shall do. There in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron as you know well, both those who are of Beit Shan and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot. Hear what I am conveying. But the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down. It's where you belong. And its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. Then we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to know that you are faithful to the covenant that you entered into with the people of Israel, despite thousands of years of unfaithfulness on their part, being exiled, rejecting you, being exiled a second time, talking against you, hating your name as it's proclaimed among the nations right now, and yet you will make it happen. It's a difficult land. It's filled with enemies. It's filled with apostasy. It's filled with hard hearts. But your word says it's going to happen. And to you, it is a snap because you are the Lord God Almighty and you can do all things. May that day be soon because by that time we will be with you in glory. Yes, Lord, may that day be soon. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for the help on the sermon. I feel like after you read the AI, you were like motivated. This is so terrible. I'm going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the AI was... Uh, fun, but it's just so typical. What it does, and AI only draws information from what's out there. So he went to a lot of sermons on that passage, and he just put it together, and you can see what, what is out there. That's what's out there on the internet. And so hopefully this will add to that knowledge base, and the AI will do something a little more in the Hebrew next time. I don't know. Anyway, 